everyone. Today is September 4th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Cameron McIntyre. He's the Tillis Wiedenthal Professor of Neurology and Associate Professor in the Departments of Biomedical Engineering, Neurology, and Neurosurgery at Case Western School of Medicine. Hi, Cameron. Hi. His laboratory is centered on optimizing the clinical use of deep brain stimulation as a therapy in movement and psychiatric disorders and on working out the biophysical mechanisms for its therapeutic action. He's also a practical guy, an entrepreneur, who is working with industry on innovating and commercializing tools that translate biophysical tools for use by clinicians. Is that right? About That's right. pretty good, yeah. I <laughs> okay, couldn't have close written enough. it better for my website. <laughs> okay, so around the room we've got uh, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Charlie Wilson. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi, and I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, um, so there's so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin, so I'm just going to say that I think this work on DBS as a treatment for depression is so cool and is maybe the closest we've gotten to science fiction here in our series, don't you think? Um, this idea that you can turn a knob and reconstruct someone's reality But it's not science completely. fiction. It's real. Science. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but, but all of a sudden, I mean, you, you, you showed us this video today, which was like this woman who talks about her reality going from agonizing to blissful at, you know, at the turn of a simulation parameter. But the problem, I guess that your work addresses is that in clinicians' hands, this is a really blunt instrument, right? Um, and uh, it's, it's effective, but we just don't know the details of how it works. So, so you, as a, as, a, as, an, as, as a biomedical engineer, biophysicist, are sort of able to work out some of these parameters and maybe um, you know, help clinicians to sh short-circuit some of the uncertainty twiddling those knobs and optimizing stuff. So I, I'd love if you could just talk about this idea of how to figure out how to dose DBS, as you put it, I think, earlier. Yeah. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, so it, it is, it's, a, it's an amazing time right now because, you know, we have this access to technology and, and it's being used in ways that, you know, I think probably weren't even considered uh, many years ago and now here it is. So, but it is, it's a very blunt tool and DBS is something that is still a very much experimental therapy for neuropsych. So, um, you know, we're, we're not necessarily ready for prime time, but I think we're getting closer. Um, I think that, you know, one of the fundamental concepts that my lab is, is really working on is that, you know, there are specific pathways in the brain that we want to stimulate, and there are other pathways that are probably something that we want to avoid. And right now we're right on the cusp of trying to figure out which are the ones that we want and which are the ones that we don't want. And in the case of neuropsychiatric disorders, where we're putting these electrodes in large white matter pathways in the prefrontal cortex, you know, prefrontal areas of brain, um, you know, that's a, a very exciting opportunity, but it's also one that's filled with a lot of confusion and, and a lot of anatomical and, and electrical uncertainty. So my philosophy on how we're going to approach that problem is that it's too hard of a problem to tease out by just anatomy alone. It's too hard of a problem to tease out by just, um, you know, clinical trial and error, and that you really need computational models to to help you, um, and that you know we can we can build very detailed computer models of individual patients and where their electrodes are in their brain, and build very detailed models of the electrical stimulation that would be generated by the specific parameters that are used in a specific patient. And that then allows us to start to look at 
different pathways that are or are not stimulated in a different patient and then make correlations between their stimulation effects, their clinical outcomes, and their stimulation parameter settings. And so that's kind of the, the concept that we're working on. But it's a slow process, and, and you know, it's something that I think is going to be you know, many, many years before we have something that's a more refined tool as opposed to the blunt instrument that we're using right now. So in the, in the way it's being done in cl- clinical practice right now, uh, it's only effective in about 50% of the patients. Is that right? Yeah. So do you think that's just a byproduct of like technical you know, issues that need to be worked out, or is this sort of a potential divergence of you know, some neurological difference in, in etiologies for different types of depression? Or do you think there's a pathway-based understanding that, that we can sort of wrap around some of those numbers, or do you think it's just you know, the fact that we're not simulating we the same way? The yeah. yeah. So, so um, I think that it's it's a whole lot of factors that are you know kind of coming into play. Um, so part of it is probably patient selection. We haven't probably figured out what is the exact right thing that you want to look for in deciding who is a candidate for DBS and who's not. Um, so that's one part of it. Um, another part is whether or not the electrode gets in the right place, but. We don't really have a good handle on what, what does that mean? What is the target? There have been two different targets that have been used in large-scale clinical trials. Uh, one is the anterior limb of internal capsule. The other is the sub-colossal uh, cingulate area. Uh, both of those are white matter pathways, and so we're stimulating in you know white matter as opposed to an anatomically defined gray matter region. So. Um, so there's a big question there. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give me a little, a little history of so where did those sites come from? The yeah. history of those sites. Right. So the anterior limb internal capsule site comes from historical work on ablation for depression, and the idea that you could um, either thermally ablate that area or or RF ablate that area. Um, and uh, that area does that come yeah. from? Uh, I th- I'm not 100% sure about the history, but my uh, my my guess and my recollection is that it kind of even stems a little bit from the lobotomy, uh, you know, history. So you're kind of cutting right. those same pathways um, from that perspective. So um, so you know those things all kind of came about by trial and error, and um, and there were some good responders. You know, these are you know, what would maybe be considered barbaric type approaches now, you know, it doesn't change the fact that some patients really got a lot better. And so how do you leverage that and come up with something that's, you know, a little bit more um, scientifically driven, if you will. Um, And then the subclossal cingulate target that was really pioneered by Helen Mayberg and, and Andres Lozano was really something that came out of, you know, functional imaging work. So it was looking at, um, you know, pet data and depression patients versus controls and looking at areas that either uh, showed, you know, lowered levels of activity or enhanced levels of activity relative to their treatment options and controls. And so you, you look at the hot spot or the low spot on the PET image and you say, okay, let's put an electrode there because it needs more juice. Um, and I think that, you know, that those kind of, you know, observation-based, you know, hypotheses are kind of where this field is right now. And we're starting to be able to 
maybe focus our efforts more on some specifics of, you know, pathways, uh, anatomical regions, and how they're connected, and why would, why would we want to modulate that particular pathway as opposed to another? So I think we're just starting to get to that point. So I, I don't think we've actually talked too much about deep brain stimulation in our series yet. So I think maybe we, can we scale back a bit sure. and go down to so what, what are the different parameters that you can play with here? What are we actually disrupting at the neural level? Can you just give us sort of a basic biophysical uh, sort of look at what yeah. deep brain is? So the clinical deep brain stimulation system is uh, relatively simple, open loop, continuous stimulation at approximately 100 hertz. Um, maybe two to three milliamps through a six millimeter squared surface area electrode contact, so a relatively large uh, surface area electrode contacts. And um, typically using monopolar stimulation um, with you know a cathode at the electrode and, a, and an anode at the um, implanted pulse generator. Um, you're typically using um, you know, short pulse widths, 60 to 100 microsecond pulse widths, like I said, two to three milliamps of, of current delivery. However, the clinical stimulators, some of which are voltage controlled, and, um, and so they'd be using, you know, two to three volts. Um, however, in neuropsychiatric applications, um, you know, higher amplitudes are, are quite often necessary, so up into the six and seven, you know, milliamps of, of current drain. So that's a, a big difference from movement disorders where we're using much lower stimulus applications. So what can, can we conclude from that? Does that mean you've got to simulate a larger volume? Is that the that's, idea? I mean, that's sort of the prevailing concept is that, you More know... More axons have to get engaged than... Or, or is it just that the axons aren't as compact in space? Um, it could it could be both. Um, you know, maybe in you know one of the you know the really anterior is a pretty axon dense compact place. Yes, yes, um, and you know, and so these white matter pathways are you know yeah there are you know millions and millions of axons that we are you know directly modulating. Um, so when is enough enough is a really good right. question. Um, but one of these things that's that's kind of an interesting biophysics, you know, issue is that when you're stimulating in white matter, the anisotropy of the tissue will actually distort the electric field, and makes makes it actually a little bit harder to to stimulate. So um, so there's a kind of a cool underlying biophysics you know problem there that's uh, you know different than stimulating in gray matter. But in general, axons are much more excitable than anything else. So much more excitable than dendrites, much more excitable than cell bodies. And, and like I said, in the context of neuropsych, we're explicitly putting electrodes in white matter. So you know, this is very much of an axon stimulation technology. And um, you know, for better or for worse, it looks like these axons that are in these areas are relatively organized so that the connection streams from one part of the brain to the next have some kind of a layering or somatotopic organization to them. And we're hoping that we're going to be able to kind of tap into stimulating these pathways somewhat selectively. Um, but that's uh, you know still yet to be seen whether we'll ever actually be able to do that or not. So this is sort of where this started, was uh, working out the physics of 
what the field looks like, what axons are going to be most likely to be stimulated by a particular mm -hmm. kind of field. And it was, I guess, in some ways, it was something that people have known how to do for a long time, but they hadn't really tried to do it. And anyway, it's computationally intensive, so just knowing kind of in, in principle how to do it didn't mean that in practice you could actually do it because you needed to have the computing resources to do it uh, at high resolution and that sure. sort of thing. Sure. So, so that was that was sort of your first step in this effort. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my special claim to fame, I guess you would call it, is that. Uh, you know, as a young student, I worked on developing computer models of how extracellular electric fields interacted with axons and, um, and neurons in general, central nervous system neurons. But the key finding from that earliest work was that even if you were stimulating, even with microelectrodes, very close to the cell body of a projection neuron, that you were actually initiating action potentials quite far away from that from that microelectrode, and in fact, deep into the you know nodes of Ranvier of the axon of that cell, and that comes about mainly because of the distribution of sodium channels. So, the you know the sort of low density of sodium channels on the dendrites and cell body of most neurons makes them actually not very excitable to extracellular electric fields. And it's really the separation of nodes of Ranvier and their high density of sodium channels that allows for the extracellular potential distribution along that axonal process to create an artificial inward current that then recruits more sodium channels and more and more and more, and then you subsequently get your action potential. So this concept of you know, we normally think from a neuroscientist pers neuroscience perspective, we normally think about axon potentials initiating in the initial segment and propagating down the axon. But when you're working with extracellular stimulation, that's seldom the case. And in fact, what you're typically doing is stimulating axonal fibers of passage or, or axonal terminal ends are also very highly excitable from extracellular stimulation. And so it, it's really, you know, action potential generation in a, in a very different way than we typically think about from a neuroscience perspective. So axons can also follow a lot higher frequency yes. than cell bodies. So the, one of the ideas that was popular in the DBS field early on was that basically the, the excitable elements couldn't follow the stimulus, yeah. and they failed, and the thing was a kind of reversible lesion. Yes. But realizing that you're stimulating axons sort of it runs counter to that because yeah. the axons, and in fact, your work has shown axons follow these high frequencies pretty well. Yeah. So it really is DBS, the S in DBS really does stand for stimulate and not lesion. I think so, and, yes. Uh, <laughs> and so picking a place in the brain where making a lesion worked against depression, and then putting an electrode and stimulating there and having that work is a little bit paradoxical. Yeah, isn't it? It's and that's happened over and over again. It happened it's in that. Happened over in, and over again. In yeah, the, in the movement disorders field, and it's happening again. Do you have? Uh, do you have any like deep insight about that pattern? Um, 
I, I guess I don't know if I'd call it deep insight, but I do think that there is a, an interesting parallel between all of the disorders that have been treated successfully with DBS technology, and that is that they all have some kind of underlying abnormal oscillatory activity associated with them. So, for example, in Parkinson's disease, you know, people like to focus on abnormal beta band activity within the, within the circuit. I think that there are corresponding things that you could draw from an obsessive compulsive disorder or, or in depression, and they might be lower frequency bands, but the same underlying core concepts. Um, and so the idea that, well, why can you ablate a pathway or ablate a, a nucleus within a circuit and eliminate the oscillations? Well, of course, because now there's no connection from A to B to C anymore. Um, but why is it that we could stimulate and also disrupt the ability of A to B to C to oscillate with each other? Um, and I think that it comes down to this concept of that's why frequency is such a, a key player in deep brain stimulation. And that is that if you have a, 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 a network that has an underlying activity level of, let's say, 60 hertz or something like that that the neurons normally fire at and that they can modulate their activity up and down 50 or 60 percent plus or minus and that's how they would generate these you know sort of bands of activity then if you artificially put in enough activity into that in a stereotyped and regular way that is at least as high as those neurons would ever be able to fire on their own pathologically then you've eliminated the ability of that A to B to C sort of story to keep propagating its way through the circuit. And so that there is this magic frequency you get to where you've overridden the ability of the circuit to perpetuate abnormal oscillatory activity. And that that may be part of the frequency sort of secret of deep brain stimulation. Um, interestingly, in the context of neuropsychiatric disorders, the neurons that were presumably modulating never fire at frequencies in that high of a range. And so why are we using such high frequencies? So is there selectivity, frequency selectivity in the depression thing if you if you dial it down to 20 hertz, but it still work? I've tried to get the clinicians to do it, but you know, these are still this is how young and untapped this field really is, is that to my knowledge, those experiments have never been done. Not, never mind the fact that I've been pleading with them it to do might be it. that 25 hertz is better I think than it, other than 25 I, hertz. I think that there is high probability that, you know, lower frequency act, you know, stimulation might actually be better, yeah. So in the STN-DBS world, those experiments have been done. Yes. People have tried all of that, and they've tuned it to the frequency that is on average best, or to some yeah. range that, in general, works the best. Well, yeah, yes and no. Uh, so the the some of the best work in that area, um, you know, was done by Elena Moro in Toronto, and actually in in her studies where they were actually doing let's say more randomized controlled blinded evaluations, there was uh, um, you know no statistically significant difference between anything you know above um, 100 hertz. So, but commonly clinicians will turn stimulators or set stimulators at 185 hertz, um, and and I think that that's 
really, you know, just a, a waste of, of battery. Um, but, you know, there's maybe a bit of a disincentive from the, you know, corporations to, to change that practice. So when they're doing the tuning, when they're tuning the stimulation, frequency is not one of the things that a usually says it's you, oh, it, it is something they have control over. It's just not something that's typically ah. uh, adjusted very much. And some centers just have a, a set policy that they'll set it at 130 hertz. That's the most common, I'd say. Because there's um, so many dimensions that have to be explored yes. in tuning the thing that you couldn't possibly explore the entire parameter space. They're just looking to narrow it down a little bit. Yes, exactly. So how do you get it so that, the, you know, so uh, the, the average programming clinical time, clinical time needed to do the, you know, kind of patient customization of a deep brain stimulator is approximately 20 hours. That's a lot of time. That's adjusting the, adjusting the stimulation parameter settings as well as the medication. So you have this balance between you know, their ongoing medications as well as their new stimulation. Um, so you have to find a balance, and that's a difficult and time-consuming process. So, so. so isn't there another curiosity in that there are sort of two time components of the therapeutic effect? So you have an acute early sort of remediation of symptoms, then you have this sort of long, slow burn where there's a delayed uh, therapeutic component. Yeah. Do you see that in DBS also, I mean, in uh, Parkinson's as well, or is it it's just an acute phase? So, yeah, so the, uh, you know, difference between acute and long and sort of, let's say, slow time course stimulation is, is very much the case in neuropsychiatric disorders. Mm -hmm. um, not as much in movement disorders. Uh, you know, most of the symptoms that, you know, were typically addressing with DBS and Parkinson's are things that you know are, will respond within minutes mm -hmm. of, of stimulation. So, so it doesn't necessarily have this sort of dual time, time course issue going on with it. So. so I'm curious about like in this science and practice, right? So you have these clinicians, they're doing this long thing that they're searching this very murky uh, parameter space and getting very crude responses back and the drug levels are all over the place. And so it seems really like where medicine really is an art. Mm, it very uh, much is. Yeah. And so it seems, are there like, uh, you know, people get in habits and there gets to be fads and it's a very social thing where someone is doing it, right? Mm. And they, you know, someone else is, is, has a lot of success so the people they train do it like they do. Mm -hmm. And there's all this personal history of that and how does that does that like really intersect with the science or kind of crazy? I can imagine it happening in kind of crazy ways where some result comes out and people misinterpret it and it really changes things and it's not really what it is, but maybe it's really effective. That's never happened. Yeah. 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 I think that's a universal flaw of human beings, but uh, yes. Yeah, but you have very much, you know, because it's such a huge space and you have a lot of uh, the individual practitioner has such a large freedom in doing that. And is there a really attempt to? To you know, with big data to keep track of all this stuff yeah. somehow, and so some and of what you've done has been to address that directly, exactly. right? by giving them tools. Exactly. So you know, when I was uh, so about ten years ago, I, I recognized that very specific problem in the context of programming deep brain stimulation systems in patients, and so I was a young engineer that didn't know anything about how clinical practice was done, but I was doing a fellowship, you know, in a clinical neurology department, and the whole point was. You know, basically, I wanted to watch them and see what they did because, 
you know, I figured whatever they're doing, I'm sure I can figure out how to make it better, you know. So, <laughs> so um, you know, and you watch them, and, and exactly what you're saying, there is a training dogma that gets established, and it works. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal. And, and so, you know, how do you change something? Well, it takes time, a lot of time, you know. So it's been 10 years since we proposed the concept of, you know, a, a, let's say a visualization-based, you know, imaging-based programming tool for deep brain stimulation. And just now, that kind of technology, 10 years later, is, you know, starting to, you know, be used in clinical practice. So it's a very, very long, you know, time course of, of adjustment that takes, and you have to, you know, go through the process of creating a commercially viable product as well, right? Because no one's going to just use your your little, you know, software program that you made in your in your research lab in a clinical environment. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, these are very long time course kinds of things, but I think if you can, you know, prove that you can save clinicians time, then they're going to be more than willing to, you know, to think about how to, you know, adjust the technologies that they're used to or willing to use because, like all things, time is money. And, you know, DBS programming was something that I recognize as something that takes a lot of time. And if you had some scientific guidance to help you, it probably would not need to take so long. Um, and that this was the idea that you could use, you know, basic biophysics and put it into the context of, you know, a graphical user interface that actually made something, um, you know, useful from the from the clinical programming perspective. So, how about collecting the data? Yeah. How about collecting what people do and just record because you know, you're just adjusting parameters and yeah. they have something that they're looking at and. Whether you record, they can't make it any difficult, but you could just record it. Yes. Like, and is, are people trying to do that? So, yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, big data is a hot topic, um, and rightfully so. And I think that it's going to have a, a real impact in the field of DBS in the coming future. So there, there are a couple of places around the country. University of Florida and Mike Oaken is, is one where they've really invested a lot of money in database infrastructure relative to sort of tracking and monitoring their, their DBS patient population. Um, we're also doing something very similar to that at CASE um, and thinking about it from the perspective of you've got all of these patients. Um, they have, you know, there are over 100,000 patients in the world right now with deep brain stimulation systems implanted in them. Um, you know, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to kind of figure out, okay, you know, let's collate some of this data and, and figure out what is it that are best practices because each center, for the most part, over the last 20 years has kind of been doing, for the most part, their own thing. You know, they all have their own nuances of, of how they manage their patients and, and how they use their technologies. But there's probably, you know, a universal best practice out there that could be defined. And, and the only way you're going to get that is you know, by kind of collating data and, and thinking about it more from, like you said, one of these kind of big databasing kind of approaches. And I think that that's coming, so. Isn't there an opportunity in here also to try to understand um, EEG better? I mean, what happens to, like, 
general field potentials around the head when you've got these simulating things? I mean, isn't there like, isn't I mean, are, are there people mining that? Yeah. So, uh, so it is really interesting. I actually think about it more from the um, from the MEG source localization problems. You know, like here is a very explicitly well-defined, you know, source that you can, you can, you know, simulate in, in the brain and you know exactly where it is and you know exactly what the amplitude is and you know exactly what the parameters of the waveform should look like. And you use it to calibrate your MEGs. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so, so there's, uh, you know, groups in Germany uh, that have, you know, a good deal of interest in doing MEG work. Um, uh, University of uh, um, Dusseldorf, sorry, are actually working on that kind of problem. I think it's really cool. Uh, I also think that the EEG side of this is, is really quite interesting. So Harrison Walker at uh, UAB has been really pioneering some, some very cool stuff looking at, um, you know, um, evoked potentials. Uh, you know, very short latency evoked potentials that you can get in cortex from, you know, subthalamic deep brain stimulation. So thinking about this concept of the hyper stimulating the hyperdirect path, sorry, the hyperdirect pathway, which is uh, for people intimately involved in the Parkinson's world know that that's sort of a, a new hot topic pathway in, in relevance to uh, the cortical drive of, of Parkinsonian activity, presumably. So, so yeah, there are some really you know interesting things that you can think about, both validation experiments, you know, with EEG or MEG in relation to DBS, as well as trying to actually interrogate the the system using those signals as well. So, yeah, I hope to answer the question of what's being stimulated, right? Yeah. I mean, if you uh, at least for the cortex, yeah. you could narrow it down a lot. I exactly. imagine there's been some of that done, like with responder versus non-responder stimulation, and then just seeing, uh, are they, do they have different cortical areas being activated by the stimulator? Yeah, I wish that there was more actually though, so it's quite quite a limited field right now. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, cortex is a big place, and it's hard, you know, to think about how you're gonna design an experiment to look at just one little part, but EEG or MEG gives you, you know, kind of a global map, and and I think that that's a very untapped sort of opportunity in, in a lot of the DBS research right now. So, yeah, because it seems like I mean, what most of the, I mean, there's a lot of things where brain imaging and so forth is moving behavioral clinical work into the brain, right? You, yeah. You instead of having some behavioral measure, which sometimes is great and sometimes is richer, sometimes it's it's pretty crude about strategies that people use for cognitive tasks or whatever. So why not look in you're adjusting your parameters? Why not see what difference it makes? Even if you don't understand that difference, you could still say this is a difference. If I get this pattern of activity when I turn the DBS on, this is clinically effective. Yeah. Rather than having to wait for some psyche, uh, you know, some uh, depressed patient for three months <laughs> to yeah. determine what happens when you change the stimulus parameter. Maybe you get an immediate signature of, of what happens and it takes benchmarking and move back. But Exactly. You know, exactly. You, you can measure, we have lots of ways to measure brain activity. So. Yeah. And, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, so we talked a little bit about, you know, how PET data has been used to, to help guide DBS. And, and the next generation of the commercial DBS stimulators are all 
quote unquote MR safe. Now, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure, but it does open up the opportunity to really start to explore DBS technology with fMRI uh, signals. And uh, that is going to be a very, very exciting new opportunity. So we haven't been able to do that um, aside from acute post-operative situations where you have the leads externalized because of the fact that you run a risk of heating at the lead tips and then causing a you know an ablation right where your stimulator is. So obviously no one wants that. It's like arcing in your microwave. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So put your spoon in the microwave. Yeah. <laughs> so the next generation of these devices, and I'm not exactly sure how they've you know worked this out, but apparently they have, and that they will actually even be labeled you know from the FDA as MR safe, and so. You know, just simple on-off fMRI bold responses in cortex relative to, you know, therapeutic and non-therapeutic stimulation. I mean, that would be a huge, you know, step forward for us in terms of trying to understand, you know, some of the stimulation effects. And, and I think that, you know, those will be things that I'm going to be looking for in the next couple of years. So. so for a long time, there's been a sort of dream of, uh, by experimentalists and other people of trying to design a stimulating electrode that would just stimulate in a particular direction and not in some other direction, or maybe even one that would cause action potentials to go this way but not that way along yeah. the axon. And uh, it seems that if that was possible, it'd be uh, awesome to apply that in these situations. Yeah. What's the What's the status of those? Those just dreams that are never going to really happen. And no, I think they're real. Um, in fact, it's it's maybe even more real than you might realize. So, um, <clears throat> so all of the major corporations that you know market deep brain stimulation devices right now are, are working on advanced electrode technology, smaller contacts. Uh, catchphrase right now is directional electrodes. So you'd have kind of instead of having cylindrical contacts around your electrode band, you have kind of slit cylinders that are cut in half, if you will, so it only stimulates in one side of the electrode kind of thing. And then a startup company uh, from the Netherlands is taking that even further. Uh, that company is called Sapiens Steering Brain Stimulation. And they actually have, uh, so the traditional DBS electrode from Medtronic that's available right now is a four-contact cylindrical electrode. Uh, but Sapiens is working on developing an electrode that it has I think it has 32 small contacts in the same area, same you know diameter and, and, and let's say height of the region of the four contacts in the Medtronic electrode. And the idea is that you have independent control of all those little contacts and you can turn them on in bunches and generate the same general stimulus as you would with a regular electrode, or you could customize it to be much more you know, elegantly shaped, if you will. Um, so that sounds super cool, and they've actually just completed some preliminary um, intraoperative tests in humans. So that technology is, you know, relatively far advanced. But when you think about, you know, that technology, it certainly is cool, uh, but it it is going to introduce a whole new order of magnitude in the complexity of how you're going to customize the stimulation to a patient. And so where is that trade-off between 
you know, having more technology and more ability to fine-tune things, but then also making the device so complicated that no clinician in the world would ever be able to manage all of those different options. You know, you already have thousands and thousands, and now you're going to have millions and millions of options. But of course, I mean, instead of making it options, if you know what you want, you yes. just design it. So, you know, I want to get the singlet bundle. Yes. I've got to go here. I can't get singlet bundle without getting this other thing. But if I built an electrode like that, I would just get the singlet bundle. Yes. So, I mean, because you're moving forward to figuring out exactly what bundle of axons we want to stimulate and which ones we don't, right? So we could... Exactly. Even maybe uh, just the axons that are going uh, one direction in a singlet bundle, not the action potentials going the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. I know there's always been a sort of uh, talk about building vagal stimulating electrodes that would stimulate the vagal nerve in one direction and not the other. And I think people have tried that. Yeah. Uh, it sounds hard to me, but... It is, it is. So generating unidirectional action potentials with extracellular stimulation is, is, a, is a hard task. It, it can be done. Um, you know, there, there are ways to, to change the shape of the stimulus waveform that um, help make that possible. You can set up, actually, uh, the way you orient anodes and cathodes along the length of the nerve. You can also help make that happen. Um, so, so yeah, those kind of things are possible. There are, you know, you know, pretty, pretty cool biomedical engineering things going on that sometimes biomedical engineers and neuroscientists don't spend enough time talking to each other. Um, and, you know, but they're really working on these things that could be quite complementary to each other. And, and yeah, that technology is, is out there. It's just waiting to find the right killer app. And it just doesn't have the killer app yet. So, so is there any future going into crazy land for optical simulation and the sorts of protocols? Is it fast enough? So yeah, I, I I'm excited about the you know potential for you know optical optogenetic stimulation to you know to make make an impact. Um, you know. The big limitation is the volume of stimulation that you can achieve without overheating the tissue. Um, but if you, if you know the um, molecular biology people can figure out how to make the you know light activated channels more conductive um, or expression densities high enough, then you know we can. That problem seems potentially solvable. Um, so that's super exciting. I think, um, you know, I also really like the idea of, you know, not necessarily the traditional channel kind of approach, but more along the lines of, you know, light-activated uh, protein creation, right? So instead of thinking about, you know, the direct on and off light effect, you have a maybe a little bit more a long-term light-activated on-off effect of, you know, changing the way a neuron sort of acts in general. Um, so I like that, and I think that that's probably got a lot more potential for application, but I'm sure it's, you know, 10, 15 years away from a, a clinically relevant situation, but certainly is uh, a powerful, powerful technology, so. Yeah. 
solve some of the battery life issues, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So that you've also worked on, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, energy efficiency is a huge, huge part of you know of this technology. So with neurostimulation, you know, most of these devices are primary cell. Uh, so. And there's a reason why they're not using rechargeable systems. Um, I guess I can get into that if you want. But the reasons are many. And, and so we have to find ways to make these stimulators more energy efficient so that they'll last longer and, and be more useful. Um, and so you can do that with you know, novel ways of, of making the stimulus waveform so that it's more energy efficient. You can do... Um, you know, advanced targeting ideas about how you're going to get the electrodes in, in just the right places and focusing the stimulation. And, uh, and, yeah, and that's the big knock on optical stimulation is that, you know, it's, you know, possibly an order of magnitude higher energy requirements to, you know, ah, to stimulate. That was so. the other way around. No, yeah. So... All right, well, this, we could go on for a long time on this topic, I have a feeling. So <laughs> we're going to let you go, though. This has been great. Thank you, Cameron McIntyre. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks.